Good morning, church. Today we get to finish up Matthew chapter 12. And this chapter has been all about opposition to Jesus. And we saw that really clearly last week, that despite Jesus' desire to stay under the radar, you'll recall that he tells those he heals not to go proclaim his name. He's once again confronted by his opponents, the Pharisees, who claim that Jesus performs his healings through the power of Beelzebul, or Satan. So their opposition to Jesus is building. Are you feeling that in the Gospel of Matthew? Last week I said that this Gospel, in it we know Jesus pretty well by this point. By chapter 12, we know what Jesus is all about. Matthew has been careful to introduce us to the Son of God who fulfills the Old Testament and who has authority over all things from his Father in heaven. But Matthew has also been consistently emphasizing Jesus' opponents, letting us get to know them, the scribes and the Pharisees. And we first met the Pharisees all the way back in Matthew chapter 3. You remember? They go and watch John, John the Baptist, baptize people in the Jordan River. And he calls them there a brood of vipers. So from the very beginning of this book, we learn to understand them as antagonists. Jesus' first interactions with the scribes isn't until chapter 8, where a scribe wants to follow Jesus. But Jesus warns him that following him is not a life filled with glory. But then Jesus doesn't really face any opposition from these men, the scribes and the Pharisees, until chapter 9. In chapter 9, Jesus forgives the sins of a paralytic man who, who he then heals but when he forgives their sins, the scribes say in their heart, do you remember this? They say, this is blaspheming. This man is blaspheming. And that's the first sign that there is a religious elite who is responding poorly to the ministry of Jesus. So immediately after, in chapter 9, Jesus calls Matthew as his disciple. Matthew leaves his tax booth and then he throws a big party, maybe a farewell party at his house. Jesus is the guest of honor. But the Pharisees ask Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then only a few verses later, the Pharisees have decided, based on these few interactions, that Jesus cannot be trusted. So they say in Matthew 9, verse 34, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. We should remember that from last week, right? They called him the prince, serving by the prince of demons all the way back in chapter 9. So the Pharisees' opposition to Jesus is heating up rapidly by this point in chapter 9. So we don't hear from them for a couple of chapters, but in chapter 12, they return with a vengeance, and it starts off with a controversy over how to observe the Sabbath. The Pharisees think that Jesus is too loose, too loose with his disciples and too loose with what he does on the Sabbath. His disciples are snacking on grain and then Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, which breaks their nitpicky codes. And in verse 14 of chapter 12, we have maybe the most consequential statement that they make, culminating after this controversy over the Sabbath, where they try to now seek how to destroy him. 
Last week, they outright call him Satan. So the Pharisees have set themselves up against Jesus and against the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. So let's remember that. Let's remember the attitude of the Pharisees as we read Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Stand with me as we read again Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 38 all the way through verse 50. Now this is the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this great generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." And while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister, my brother and sister and mother. Please be seated. And let's pray. Lord, We cry out to you asking for help to understand your word. We know that you are faithful. So Spirit, right now we pray that you would bring uh, your illuminating power to our hearts. Help us be molded and shaped by your word into the likeness of Christ. Lord, we love you so much and we desire to, to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text today asks a lot of questions. I'll confess that Chapter 12 is a tricky chapter. There's a lot of things that are brought up that we want answers to immediately, and I'm going to do my best to address those, but I I want to state at the forefront that we'll we'll encounter some things that we'll want to know, but the main point of the passage is what I'm going to spend the most time on today. And the, the point of this passage today demonstrates the fact that there's really only two responses to Jesus, two possible responses to Jesus. Verses 38 through 45 show us first the response of hard-heartedness. Considering the outward opposition the Pharisees have demonstrated against Jesus throughout this book, we might be surprised to find them asking Jesus a question, politely even, in verse 38. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Teacher would have been an honorable title. Something like rabbi. But the question, the question is asked politely, but notice they're answering Jesus here. 
They're responding to his words from verses 25 through 37. Some translations even suggest that this encounter happened at a later date, but that's not what it says in the Greek. It seems to follow right after Jesus calls them a brood of vipers, just like John the Baptist. Who, and then he, he says they only have evil in their hearts. So they are asking this question right after these harsh statements from Jesus. And what are they asking for here? They want a sign. They want a miracle on demand. On the outside, they want to verify that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is sent from God. So in a sense, it's a good question, but really it's asked disingenuously. Apparently, the healing of the demon-possessed man in verse 22 wasn't enough of a sign for them. In fact, they are well aware at this point of Jesus' many miracles and healings and exorcisms and his demonstrations over and over again of his divine authority. So what they're really saying by asking this question is that none of Jesus' signs so far are enough for them to conclude that he is the Messiah. At this point, what would convince them? At this point, nothing would convince them. They are hard-hearted toward Jesus. They have already rejected him, and they've even attributed his works to Satan. They don't really believe that Jesus could do anything to convince them. Back in verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts, meaning he knew their motivations and he knew their hearts. They spoke their words out loud right before that statement is found in Matthew 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts in that he knew their motivations. He knows they are not asking this question in eagerness, wishing for him to demonstrate his authority again. So he responds. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, before we get to Jonah, we have to talk about the first part of that sentence. An evil and adulterous, adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Jesus knows the hearts of the Pharisees. But he doesn't just call them evil and adulterous, the individuals approaching him. He ascribes those words to the whole generation that they're in. Now, he doesn't mean by generation the same way we use generation. He's not using it the same exact way. By generation, Jesus is referring to the Pharisees and everyone who associates with them, which is a lot of people. This evil and adulterous, I'm going to have a hard time saying adulterous and generation back to back. So bear with me. Evil and adulterous generation is anyone who rejects the Messiah of, of Israel. That who is, that's who's in this generation. Anyone who rejects the Messiah of Israel. Ultimately, the, the generation Jesus is referring to is anyone who sides with the Pharisees. And they're evil in many ways. Of course, they're sinful, but they're also self-serving. Even this question that they ask Jesus is self-serving. And despite all the miracles that Jesus has done already, they ask him to prove it again because they want to exert some sort of control over him or make it known that they don't think he's been good enough to qualify. And they are adulterous, not in the sense of cheating on their spouses, although that could have been the case, 
But in the Old Testament prophetic sense of adulteress, they have left behind fidelity to their one God by rejecting his Messiah. Their adultery is idolatry. By referring to the whole generation, Jesus is saying, every one of you and everyone like you is evil in selfishness and adulterous in their rejection of Israel's Messiah. Jesus confounds their request by saying that the only sign they'll receive is both future tense and past tense. He says that the sign they'll receive is the prophet Jonah. The whole book of Jonah is to be their sign, not just the fish who swallowed him. Jesus wants them to open up that book and read it through. That's the sign they're receiving from Jesus. But Jesus is gracious, and he explains what he wants them to find there. Because Jonah was a type of Christ. We've talked about types and typology a little bit in the past. It's the idea that certain people, especially certain people in the Old Testament, prefigure Jesus in different ways. So Jonah is a type of Christ, and he explains how in verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah and the great fish is one of the most famous stories of the Old Testament. Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days, spit up onto dry land. So Jesus says here, just as Jonah was in the belly of that fish for three days and for three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the earth, the heart of the earth even, for three days and three nights. Jonah's stay in the belly of the fish prefigured or typified Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the only sign the Pharisees will receive. They either have to open the book that they say they value so highly and read, looking back at what God has already done, or they have to wait until Christ's resurrection in the future. Their demand for a sign right now is directly denied. Jesus doesn't give in to that demand. This is the second time that Jesus has encountered someone asking him to give a sign to prove that he's the Messiah in this gospel. Can you think of who the other person is? In chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus to prove his sonship. The second temptation Satan brings to Jesus was when he brought him up to the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus replied, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And now here in chapter 12, these offspring of vipers, as Jesus just called them, are doing the same thing. Give us a sign to prove to us that you are the Son of God. But what does Jesus do? He does the same thing again just as he did in chapter 4. He points to the scriptures. The sign that they need is already written down. Open the book. Because signs from God are not received on demand. If signs come at all in our lives, 
They are a gift of grace from him. There are many people who proudly say that if God would just show me a sign that he's real, I'd believe. If he would just open the skies up and talk to me or something. If God would simply make himself known, I'd change my mind. I like this quote from the Bible scholar and commentator on this passage named Leon Morris. He said, people who serve God in faithfulness may indeed see signs, but sensation-seeking unbelievers will not see them. You can take that to the bank. Those who demand that God reveal himself by a sign to them today are no different than these Pharisees who are confronted with evidence upon evidence and still reject Jesus. So what will, you, what will convince you to believe? What will convince you? Is your heart, your heart hard toward Jesus? Do you come here today with a hard heart, thinking nothing will convince you that Jesus is the Christ? That God is personal and speaks in his word? That he desires a relationship with you? Do you come here today with a hard heart? If your heart is hard toward Christ, nothing will convince you. You can even be presented with clear evidence of Jesus' resurrection and still reject him, just as the Pharisees would do. Now, because I know that many of you might have a question about verse 40, I want to pause and address it. Jesus says that, Like Jonah, the Son of Man would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. And Jesus is talking about himself and his death and resurrection here. That's who the Son of Man is. The heart of the earth is another way of saying the grave or the tomb. Jesus was in the tomb Friday night, all day Saturday, and Sunday morning. So strictly speaking, that's not three days and three nights. But that phrase, three days, three nights, is a Semitic phrase. So Near Eastern idiom for any portion of three consecutive calendar days. We want it to be three consecutive 24-hour periods. That's just not how they even understood time. To our modern ears, that way of talking, uh, this way of talking about time is just not precise enough. But we live in the age of atomic clocks. We are much more precise than they were. Again, three days and three nights is an idiom for any portion of three consecutive calendar days. So Jesus fulfills exactly what he states here in the understanding of his hearers. So we shouldn't be put off by or taken off guard by this. In any case, the point is that Jonah's stay in the belly of the fish was a type of what Christ would experience, his death and resurrection. Jonah was miraculously delivered from death. He should have been digested But he was raised, so to speak, from death. And likewise, Jesus actually did die. But then his tomb was empty. Jesus was raised to life. But Jesus doesn't want them just to read that portion of Jonah, Jonah 1 and 2, that talks about the fish swallowing him. He wants them to read the whole book. Look again at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. 
This was the empire that deported the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. They were a great enemy to the people of God. And they were known for their cruelty around the world and for their paganism. But God sent Jonah, his prophet, to preach to this city, the capital of Assyria, to preach a message of repentance. And these cruel pagans who were hated by the world for their military dominance heard the words of Jonah. And what did they do? They repented. And God withheld his judgment from them. And when you read the book of Jonah, it's clear that Jonah is not a perfect guy. He's swallowed by the great fish because he runs away from God's call. And the end of the book makes it clear that, that Jonah, as he's, as he's watching, that he wishes that Nineveh would be destroyed. God, when, are, when is it going to happen? So despite Jonah's inadequacy and Nineveh's evil nature, more evil than any known city, perhaps, the people still repented. And Jesus says that they, that generation of Ninevites, will rise up as witnesses against this generation, the Pharisees and the people who agree with them. They will rise up at the judgment and condemn them like witnesses in a courtroom. They will say, we repented after hearing this sinful minor prophet who smelled like fish, but you all had Jesus Christ. But you remained in your sin. Jesus is not equal to Jonah. He is much greater. Jonah typifies Christ in his deliverance from the belly of the fish and his preaching of a message of repentance, but Jesus does both of these things to a much greater degree. How, how evil of a generation do you need to be to be worse than the Ninevites? But that's not Jesus' only example. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The formulation of this second example is identical to the first. A pagan queen, the queen of the south, will stand as a witness against this evil generation at the judgment and condemn it. Notice all the similarities between these two examples. This queen, the queen of the south, is not Jewish. Neither are the Ninevites. The two examples that Jesus gives are Gentiles who respond to a message of either wisdom or repentance properly. But the generation that has the scriptures, who says they study it so much, rejects the Messiah when he comes. Hmm. The queen of Sheba, we meet in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, which uh, Sheba would be like modern day Yemen. And she traveled to question Solomon and is left, it says there, is left breathless. The breath is taken out of her before the wisdom of Solomon. She says there, she says to Solomon after he answers all of her questions, I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. She marvels at the wisdom of King Solomon. Now Solomon was 
the wisest man to ever live before Jesus Christ. But now, the Son of God, the better and greater Solomon is on the scene. And he has demonstrated his wisdom over and over again in this gospel. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she marveled at the godly wisdom of a lesser king. But this generation doesn't seek godly wisdom. They want the wisdom of men. When they are confronted with godly wisdom, they attribute it to Satan. They reject it. Something greater than Solomon had arrived, and they failed to recognize him. If you're keeping count in chapter 12 of the Gospel of Matthew, this is the third thing that Jesus says he is greater than. Have you noticed that? All the way back in verse 6, he says, something greater than the temple is here. So he is now greater than the temple, greater than Jonah, and greater than Solomon. The temple, of course, is where priests would make sacrifices before the Lord day and night. And Jesus is our great high priest and our presence of the Lord. Jonah was the mouthpiece of the Lord as a prophet, but Jesus is our greater prophet. Solomon was the king of the people of Israel, the only king who reigned in prosperity and peace. But Jesus is greater than Solomon. He is our greater king. Jesus is greater. Amen? Jesus is greater. Amen? Verses 43 through 45 are often treated like a random insertion into the narrative. They do seem to relate strangely on first reading with verses 38 through 42 if we, if we read them too quickly. But look at the end of verse 45. Let's start at the end. It says, So also will it be with this evil generation. As we read these verses and try to understand them, we have to remember that the ultimate interpretation and purpose of these verses lies in their connection to this evil and adulterous generation. These verses act as a parable that teaches something about opposing Jesus. So let's read them again. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. So it's tempting to immediately think that Jesus is only teaching us something about demons and demon possession. Sure, uh, there, there are several things that we can learn about demons here and how they operate, but that's not really why Jesus is saying what he's saying. Jesus is applying this to the people he's talking to, that he's addressing, the Pharisees and all who associate with them, that evil generation. He's using this as a parable. So those who experienced and witnessed the ministry of Jesus on earth and still reject him, are like a demon-possessed man who is delivered from his demon, who cleans himself up, but then the demon returns home and, and finds nothing living there, so he gets some of his buddies and they move back in. And now that man is more 
worse off than he was before. Those who seek the greatness of Christ, who experience his miracles and who still reject him, are going to be worse off than they were before. Jesus may have in mind even the destruction of the temple just 40 short years from when he is speaking. The people of Israel were brought back to their promised land in Ezra and Nehemiah. They clean up their act. They start to follow the law a little better. But ultimately here, they reject their Messiah. And unlike the Ninevites and the queen of the south, they fail to repent or to seek wisdom. And so, once again, they are kicked out of their land after Jesus delivers these words. They're conquered and humiliated by Rome. The demon-possessed person of the parable ultimately pictures this generation of Jewish people who reject their Messiah. That's the main purpose of this passage. But verses 43 through 45 also have a lot to say about us individually. First, the man in the parable fails to fill his life with something that will keep demons out. He reforms himself after the demon leaves, but when the demon returns, he finds the heart of the man empty, and this homeless demon resumes his residence with seven other unclean spirits. In a way, Jesus is speaking right to the man who was healed in verse 22. Remember, that's the occasion for all of this. If this man fails to follow Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit, what's stopping this demon from returning? Nothing. But we can apply these verses to all non-believers, not in the sense that non-believers all have a demon, but there's a great tendency in our world for individuals to seek moral reform, morality without Jesus Christ. I drink too much, so I'm going to sober up. I have a gambling addiction, so I'll go get help. I don't speak very nice to my wife, so I'm going to do better, and so on down the list. Moral reform is great, but If it isn't paired with spiritual renewal, it will fail. Maybe it's good that we hear this at the beginning of the year. When some of us have some New Year's resolutions that we're trying to accomplish. Moral reform is not long-lasting without spiritual renewal in Jesus Christ. You can kick your bad habits by sheer force of will. You can look a lot better on the outside. But if you just dust yourself off and put your life in order without submitting your life to Christ, then you have no real foundation. Christianity is not just about putting your life in order. Christianity is about finding that foundation. It's about building your life upon the rock of Jesus Christ. The man who tries to put himself together without Jesus is the man who thinks that there is middle ground. He likes some of Jesus' teachings as a moral guide. They've helped him change some of the aspects of his life. They've helped him understand himself and the world a little bit better. But that man is not willing to let Jesus take residence in his life. 
Jesus says here that the person who just cleans up their life without letting the Holy Spirit take residence simply gets his house looking nice for the demon to come back and make a bigger mess. There's no middle ground, you see, when it comes to Jesus. He doesn't claim to be merely a good teacher who offers some decent life advice. Jesus says in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Those are the only two options. You are either with Jesus or you are against him. And we can do this at a cultural level very easily. As if all of our problems would be solved if we just see some good moral reform in our culture. If people would stop doing this or that or stop being sexually immoral in this way or stop doing so much of this bad stuff and listening to that music or if they would just vote like this, much of life would be better. And sometimes as Christians, we think that's good enough. We think that's all we need. But it's not. What the world needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the world will, will look a lot better if people believe in Jesus Christ. Amen? So our imperative is not as a voting block. It's as evangelists. Now, how you vote matters. That's not what I'm saying. Do so in wisdom. But your number one priority is to the expansion of the kingdom of God. Amen? We need to bring people into the kingdom of God with the gospel of Jesus Christ, with the, with the message of hope and life and truth. And only then should we expect the world to look more like him. So if we try to seek moral reform, either individually or culturally, without the influence of the Holy Spirit, we're just dusting things off, waiting for it to get worse again. This is the great tendency of the world, that we have religion for a little bit. And then we realize, or we think we realize, we can have morality without religion. We can have the goodness of right and wrong without the foundation of Jesus. And once we remove the foundation, things spiral out of control. Look around you. What does this world look like to you? If we want to have real godliness around us, real revival, we need the Spirit. Amen? We need Jesus Christ. Now, what we can learn about demons and demon possessions is, we can learn some of that here in these verses. So let's, let's look at that a little bit. I've already said Jesus is telling more of a parable than he is giving an explanation of the culture and the habits of unclean spirits. Nevertheless, there are a couple key truths worth noting. One answer to a question. A waterless place. Demon leaves and goes to a waterless place. You might have that question. Why does he mention that? Waterless place, an arid place, a desert. Those were associated with the dark and the demonic, with the spiritual forces of darkness. When Jesus goes into the desert in Matthew 4, who does he encounter? Satan. That's why he's driven out there. These places were associated with darkness and demons. So in this parable, that's where the demon heads. The first truth that we can learn from this about demons. First, demons are unclean spirits. Their nature is unclean, which means they're opposed to the holiness of God. Demons 
Don't try to get better. Demons are unclean. Second, demon possession is real. Today even. In our culture even. That doesn't mean that everyone who is an unbeliever has a demon. Or that everyone who is now a Christian had a demon. But it is a real phenomenon. We should watch out for it. We should guard against it. Knowing that we are victorious over Satan and his forces of darkness in Jesus Christ. Third, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. If the man in the parable had been saved by Jesus Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, if something had taken up residence in that home, then the unclean spirit would have found his place occupied by a new and greater tenant. Christians are indwelt by the Spirit, and so they cannot be possessed by a demon in that way. Rest assured, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you don't have a demon. Praise God that Jesus is victorious over Satan and his demons. Amen? These are not things that we should fear as much as they'd like us to fear them. They are powerless in light of the gospel. We sang this morning, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, and one little, little word, Jesus, shall fell him. Praise the Lord. The first response to Jesus we find in these, this passage is hard-heartedness. The Pharisees demonstrate their hard hearts through their direct opposition, and even though some might think that they don't need to side with Jesus, they will find their hearts hardened in the end if they try to believe the lie of the middle ground. What's the other option? Second, discipleship. Let's read this again, verses 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. If you have the ESV in your lap right now, don't be thrown off by the exclusion of verse 47. That's a translation choice, and they include it in a footnote. Because it's a disputed verse, meaning Bible scholars and translators are unsure if it's original. And so the translators of the ESV, being pretty conservative when it comes to possible later editions, keep it in a footnote. Many other translations have it right there. Don't be thrown off. All verse 47 says is, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak with you. It's essentially the same exact thing as verse 46. But we're introduced to a messenger who Jesus then talks to in 48. So we are missing zero information. Don't worry. None of the meaning has changed. On first reading of this passage, verses 46 through 50 seem negative. Like Jesus is ignoring his family. Jesus' mothers and brothers are just wishing to speak with him. What's the big deal, Jesus? Why does Jesus refuse? Don't skip over the first line. While he was still speaking to the people, Jesus is in the middle of preaching. He's in the middle of this sermon. His mother and brothers demand his attention right then. Much like the demand of the Pharisees, Jesus turns them down. In their minds, 
the family matters more than Jesus' current sermon. They seem to have no problem asking to speak with him while he's speaking the truths of the gospel to the crowd. And there's no indication that Jesus sends them on their way and never talks to them. It doesn't say whether they have dinner after he's finished preaching or whatever. But Jesus does make it clear right here that his biological family does not take precedence over his spiritual family. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Here are my mother and brothers. Jesus looks at the people in front of him, his many different disciples, male and female, and he stretches out his hands and he calls them family. He says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What does it mean to be Jesus's brother, sister, or mother? Can someone really claim to be the mother of Jesus except Mary? That's not the point. The point is this. In Christ, a new family is created. There's a new family centered around Jesus Christ. The church is the household of God. And we are now co-heirs with Christ. We individually, as Christians, have been adopted into God's family. And out of the many who believe and who are saved by Jesus, one new household, one family is created. As disciples, those who are eager to do the will of the Father... They are members of his family. Take comfort in that this morning. It's a beautiful picture of the church. This is how we should relate to one another. Not merely as acquaintances, who we get to see on Sundays sometimes. But as family members, as Jesus demonstrates here, the church should be closer than family. The church is not just a place to visit once a week. The church is a place to belong. It's a new community. Better yet, it's the family of God. Praise the Lord. The church is best when it emphasizes this reality. Families care for one another. Families protect one another. They belong to each other and they share with each other. Jesus stretches out his hands to his disciples, to you. And he calls you brother and sister. To be his disciple is to be in his family. This is the only other option. Joining God's loving family. Being united to each other by the spirit of Christ. That's the only other option. All people are called to join in the family of God. To become disciples. And here, discipleship is defined by doing the will of the Father. Because Jesus... Our older brother always did the will of the Father. And learning from Jesus, being his disciple, is learning to live as he lived. So there is a beautiful twofold meaning here. Being his disciple is both joining the family and becoming like him. And both of them are together, they're one and the same. That's discipleship. We cannot have discipleship without each other. You see that? And we cannot have discipleship without the pursuit of Christ-likeness. They are both intimately and inseparably joined together. So are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
Are you a member of his family? That's what we want as a church, amen? To consider each other family. A family that that pushes its members to be like Jesus, amen? There is no middle ground. There are only two possible responses to Jesus. Either wickedly dismiss him as the Pharisees do. Or become his disciple and a member of the family of God. That's it. No middle ground. Where are you? There is a lie that we can believe that there's a fence to sit on. That we can have some of Jesus without letting him take up residence in our heart. That is a lie worth rejecting. There is no middle ground. Let's pray. Lord, let us not sit on the fence any longer. Confront our hearts with your truth. Call us to be your disciples. If there are those in this room who have not followed you wholeheartedly, we pray that you would Give them a new heart, Lord Jesus, as your word says. Lord, we are so thankful for the family that you have given us, the the family that you have blessed us with in each other. Help us not to take that for granted. Help us to be motivated to push one another to look more like you. You are holy and good. You are lovely. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.